Nine black people were shot and killed in Chicago this weekend, so blacks rioted in Milwaukee. Milwaukee blacks were protesting the fact that police had shot and killed Silville Smith, a robbery suspect with a long criminal record who was brandishing a stolen gun. Rioters swarmed the Milwaukee streets chanting, We demand that we take responsibility for our own lives and stop blaming white people for our troubles. We are going to burn the city down until we stop having children out of wedlock, whom we don't take care of so that they join gangs and use drugs. There will be no peace until our young men stop acting like th thugs and we all join with the police to help curtail the violent crime in our neighborhood. And possibly I didn't hear those chants correctly. It was very noisy because of all the rioting. Black Lives Matter spokesman Sojourner Crap, no relation to Sojourner Truth, told reporters, quote, we demand that these police stop shooting innocent robbery suspects with long criminal records who are brandishing stolen guns. Before you know it, a robbery suspect with a long criminal record won't be able to walk down the street brandishing a stolen gun without some bigoted cop killing him. This poor young man never even had a chance to unleash some rounds on his fellow gangbangers in the hood so a stray bullet could go through a window and kill a child doing his homework, something we could all happily ignore, unquote. President Barack Obama spoke out about the police shooting, saying that if he had had a son, he would have looked like Silville Smith, except for the private school uniform and the contingent of armed guards surrounding him at every minute and the fact he lived in a big white mansion. The president went on to call for peace, saying, quote, I will continue to speak out, stirring up black anger with false statistics until each and every person in America is not paying attention to the fact that I've regulated the economy to a standstill and allowed the Middle East to go up in flames. Then, once I've made black people angry enough for them to murder and riot, I will call for peace with a sad, serious expression that makes me look like I give a damn about anything besides my agenda, unquote. Harvard Black Studies professor Wittering Articulate told an interviewer, quote, Milwaukee hasn't had a fully Republican mayor since 1908, so it's time we got out there and voted in some more Democrats to make sure conditions in black neighborhoods continued to deteriorate. Otherwise, let's face it, I'm out of work, unquote. Meanwhile, in Chicago, where there hasn't been a Republican mayor since 1933 and where gun laws are among the most restrictive in the country, there were at least 27 shootings this weekend alone. Mayor Rahm Emanuel told reporters, quote, just vote Democrat and restrict guns. I don't have time to say more. I have to get off the street before I get my ass killed. <laughs> Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Oh, man, oh, man, the Clavenless weekend. The Clavenless weekend is a fun. If Milwaukee didn't know what hit it. Louisiana is underwater. Milwaukee is on fire. Oh, I, you know, I would work all the time, except uh, I just don't care enough. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the way it is. All right, we are on. We're going to talk about this ride because this is a disaster. This stuff is, is awful. This is, it really is genuinely awful what's happening to this country, and it is all the fault of our friends on the left. Uh, we, you can watch the first 15 minutes of this on Facebook. And then you have to come to The Daily Wire. You can get it later on iTunes or on SoundCloud. And if you subscribe, you can watch the entire thing. You won't get cut off at all, and you can send questions in the mailbag. Also, if you would like to pre-order a copy of my memoir, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, I will. you can send the uh, receipt to me, and I will send to the aclaven at dailywire.com, and I will send you a sticker with an autograph that you can put in the book. All right, let us talk about it. This is a, a nightmare in Milwaukee. Saturday afternoon, a uh, couple of cops do a traffic stop. They see some suspicious 
uh, activity in a vehicle. The guy gets out. He's a suspect in a robbery. That not only did he steal a gun, but he stole 500 rounds of ammunition. He starts running. He's got a gun with 23 rounds in it, and somehow he ends up dead. Who could who could ever have imagined that a policeman would shoot a man just for being a robbery? This guy's been in trouble with the law. And by the way, not that it should matter, but we know it does. The cop was also African American, so he's a black cop. Riots break out. City goes up in flames. They break. They broke out again last night. There were gunshots fired. Somebody was shot last night. They set a gas station on fire. They set businesses on fire. Let's take a look at just a little bit of the rioting and listen to what these people are saying. targeting white people, he's white, let's beat him up, you know, it's, I mean, it's really, I, I gotta say, if you are a, uh, uh, a black guy, black girl, making his way in the world like the rest of us, this has got to break, your, it's got to break your heart, I mean, you got to look at this and just put your head in your hands, I mean, when people shout black power or any kind of power while they're burning things down, everybody's got that power. Everybody's got the power to destroy things. There's nobody who hasn't got that, you know. I mean, you sit with a one-year-old and you build a tower of blocks, he knocks it down. Why? Because he can. That's the power that he has. So, you know, I mean, it's a lot easier to burn a gas station than to run a gas station. A lot easier to burn businesses and crash their glass than to run a business. And, and he has one rioter. I, I hate to laugh, but it's got, kind of this uh, mordantly funny. Here's one rioter explaining why this is happening. It's sad because, you know, this will happen because they're not helping the black community. Like, you know, the rich people, they got all this money and they're not like, you know, trying to give us none. It's <laughs> they have all this money and they're not giving any to us. You know, I have that problem, too. <laughs> a lot of people want more money than me who aren't giving money to me. You know, I mean, that. but that is that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about ideas. What you are seeing when you see this is you're seeing ideas in action. And you wonder why, you know, every day I get these attacks, you know, why do you attack Donald Trump when he's the only thing we've got against Hillary? And why do you attack Hillary and all this stuff? It's because ideas are what motivate people. You know, Myron Magnet, a friend of mine, wrote a brilliant book called The Dream and the Nightmare about how the 60s went wrong. And it contains the sentence that I'm not quoting verbatim, but it's something like, people act because of the ideas in their heads. They act out the ideas in their heads. And that's what we're talking about. Where do these ideas come from? Let's just stop for a second and talk about the police stop itself, just so we're clear about this. It, it inf well, here's the police chief, or the Milwaukee police chief, Edward Flynn, describing how the stop took place. This is the first Flynn quote. I was advised it was a suspicion stop. They thought this vehicle uh, was behaving in a suspicious manner. It's a rental car, it turns out. Or we have not ascertained its status as to whether or not it was lawfully rented or stolen or held over. We don't know. Uh, but this event, uh, I did look at the tape, and I can tell you this event probably took 20 to 25 seconds. I mean, there was virtually 
no time between the officer unhooking his seat belt, turning on his body camera, getting out of the car, and immediately he was in a foot chase. And that foot chase went maybe a few dozen feet before he encountered this individual in a, in a fenced yard bordered by two houses. Not really an alleyway, but a, a way between two houses. And the uh, incident occurred very, very rapidly. Um, so uh, it was uh, very fast. Uh, the individual was armed. Uh, the individual did turn toward the officer with a firearm in his hand, and the officer, we can't tell when the officer discharges his firearm because the, there's a, this, with many body-worn cameras, certainly all of ours, there's a 30-second delay before the audio kicks on. I don't know when the shots were fired. Okay, so I mean, it drives me crazy that we even have to talk about this. A guy gets out of a car, found this guy's been in trouble with the law, we only we, the only reason we don't know how long is because his juvenile records are sealed. Basically, he was charged with intimidating a witness, which is a very, very vicious and serious thing to do. You know, he's charged with all kinds of crimes. He gets out of a car with a gun. The police stopped him. You know, what do you do? You put your hands on the steering wheel and say, "What did I do?" He breaks out of the car. He runs. He's got a gun. He's brandishing the gun. I don't think we have a right to parse what this cop did. I really don't. I, you know, and I'm not. I'm not a worship. I, I really respect the police, and I'm so grateful that they're out there. But I understand the police do bad things and have to be held to account. I think the police understand that as well. But that's not the point. You get out of a car with a gun and you're brandishing the gun. You're a dead man, as far as I'm concerned. That you know that you've written your own epitaph and my. Your epitaph was, I was an idiot, and the police killed me because of it. That's, the, that's the, what should be on your headstone, you know? And it's, it has nothing to do with not feeling for the parents or the brothers and the sisters who are out there crying, saying, saying giving interviews like, oh, they should have tased him. Don't tell me they should have tased him. You know, <laughs> you know what are you talking about? You know, I don't, I don't want a cop to have, like, a black and blue mark on his leg because of this guy. I didn't let alone risk him getting shot. So here is the outspoken sheriff, David Clark, the Milwaukee sheriff. We've all seen him. He goes on Fox News all the time, and he's just always hammering at Obama for, for being the instigator of a lot of this. And he talks about what this stop was like if you're on the ground. These things are tragic situations every time an officer has to use force. No officer wants to do it. It is a last resort. And uh, the actions of the perp matter here and are important. Uh, he was armed. And not just because you're not armed, because I always say unarmed does not mean not dangerous. But this would appear to be, appear, I don't know all the facts. You know, these cop haters can't say police shoot on our man. So you look at a lot of things, and this guy didn't deserve to die, but he's a co-actor in his own demise. Some people can't stomach that. Well, that sounds cruel, but it's the truth. You get out of a car with a handgun in your hand when you confront the police, bad things are going to happen, not through any fault of the officer. The officer is not required, and I never want officers to get to a state. Well, they have to let the perpetrator make the first move. They have to get shot at or have the gun pointed at him. A gun in the hand down here to a cop, it's very quick from here to here. 
That's it's very quick from here to here. That's exactly right. And and everything he says there's true. The guy's like, you know, co-actor in his own demise. It's not like, oh, we're glad he's dead. It's not like he deserved to die. No, nobody deserves to die. That's what the, the Bible tells us. You know, we either we all deserve to die or nobody deserves to die. That's that's not the point. He was that is a, a perfect description, a co-actor in his own demise. He brought it on himself as another way of putting that. And the other thing is, is the guys who then go out and riot, right? They have their own agenda. They're not out there weeping for this guy. They're not trying to save black lives. We know that. We know that the black I mean, you know, the murder rate in Chicago, I think it was this weekend, nine people died in Chicago. You know they were black. You know, you know the people who killed them were black. Nothing, nothing from these BLM people. But it's all about this, and they're going to make a fuss. And Clark, one of the things Clark realizes is they are not about the lives of people, no matter what they're title of their organization is, they are about their agenda. He talks about it here. I looked at some of the uh, particulars of that, shootings, robberies. Uh, those lives are valuable, too. Okay? And they don't seem to, and I know why, because this other one's police is a political construct, and that's not a political construct. But I think it shows the, the uh, phoniness and the contradictory nature of this, this, this ideology. Uh, and I think it's a shame they're exploiting this for some political reason. And, you know, at some point, I think the public's going to get it. I really do. Uh, they're going to be exposed for what this thing really is. It's a uh, thinly veiled anarchist movement, just trying to incite chaos, uh, threatening institutions we have. Police are a government institution. Uh, we stand on the front lines of ordered liberty. We want to attack ordered liberty and have the chaos you saw last night. You have to attack the police to get through it. Right, exactly. The police are the thin blue line to protect ordered liberty. It is, you know, it, the thing is, the police are not the purpose of the police. We are the purpose of the police. The guy who writes a book, the guy who has an idea, the guy who invents a computer, we are the purpose. Of, that stuff doesn't happen when the city's on fire. That stuff doesn't happen when you can't go out to get a pack of gum without getting mugged. That You know, New York changed. New York City, and I was there, was a hellhole. It was a hellhole. It was going down the drain, and it was only the kind of tough policing that the Obama administration is now attacking it in every way it can, only the kind of tough policing, they call it, they call it, uh, what do they call it? There's no, um, I, I can't remember, they have some, yeah, it's broken windows policing, but they basically say there's no, you know, we have no tolerance, no, no, that's it, zero tolerance. No cop uses that phrase, no cop uses the phrase zero tolerance. The cops are in the business of tolerating the small things people do, but if you don't stop them from urinating against the wall, from painting on the wall. If you don't stop those little crimes, the neighborhood becomes a place the predators see as their territory. And that was the idea behind broken windows pol policing. But it's more than that. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, we have to say goodbye to our friends on Facebook. Come on over to Daily Wire. Charge! All right, hooray, the trumpets blow. <laughs> hark, hark, the trumpets blow, and we're now back at the Daily Wire. It always makes me think, like, we're going to charge over the hill. But, you know, here's the thing. This is it. You know, people say, well, why do you have to attack Muslims when so many, Islam, when so many Muslim people are patriotic, so many are decent, just going about their lives? You attack Islam 
because of its ideas. You mentioned that there may be problems with these ideas. I would attack Christianity for its ideas when I think that they're not actually Christian ideas, and there are many churches that I would, I would attack for their ideas that I disagree with. But, you know, we attack the ideas because people act on ideas, and what you're seeing, you're not seeing... You're not seeing evil people. You're seeing evil ideas being acted out by people, and it makes people evil. You know, and the left is in complete, complete control. The other reason we're always talking about the media, the left is in control of the flow of ideas. Leftist news media trained by leftist universities echoing leftist politicians. And they, they, they use that power to put ideas in your head and everybody's head that just aren't true. 97% of scientists believe in catastrophic man-made climate change. Totally untrue. Totally untrue, but most people think they know it. Women make 70 cents on the dollar compared to men. Untrue. Just not a fact, but they just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until you think you know it. And the, the thing that they do that is especially useful to them, especially uh, effective, and especially impressive in a way, if you like, if you admire liars, is, is they bake the dishonesty right into the language. I'm always talking about this with feminists. They talk about objectifying women, objectifying women. All objectifying women means is that men are attracted to people, to women, according to the way they look. That's the way we're built. We have a very powerful visual stimulus sense in our erotic lives. So when you say, oh, well, that's objectifying women, when you say it's not right to uh, admire, you know, Giselle Bündchen instead of Lena Dunham, and you look at Lena Dunham and think, not so much, you know, that they say, well, that's unfair. That's un what that is saying is that there is something inherently wrong with a man just for being a man. You know, they make up these words. And then when you say, when you try to tell them that's untrue, they say, well, you're mansplaining. And my feeling is, is I'm going to go on mansplaining until feminist girl understand, you know, because, because you, you know, you can play these games with words, but that doesn't mean they're true. And with blacks, they do it every single day, almost every phrase they use, you know, black lives matter, just the name of this. So people say, well, all lives matter. And they say, yes, well, yes, but that's not what we mean. We mean black lives matter, too. As if we don't know that, as if any, you know, I mean, the violence in this country that is inter, white on black, white and black violence, when there is a crime, a violent crime between a white person and a black person, it is almost always the black person who is the attacker and the white person who is the victim. You heard them shouting, you know, go attack the whites, go attack the whites. You know, I understand that we have had the opposite of that in this country. I understand that. But that is pretty much over. You do not see mobs of white people shouting, go attack the black guy anymore. You did see it in the past. You know, the, the there was a uh, civil rights activist who once said, you know, we can't solve this problem by beginning with the present. We have to start with the past. That's just totally wrong because you can't change the past. The whole thing about the past is it's past. You know, it's over. You can't do a thing about it. So all these lies, mass incarceration, when was anybody, you know, since the Japanese in World War II, when was anybody mass incarcerated? Each of these people gets a trial, each of them gets a plea bargain, each of them gets accused and charged and the facts gathered and the, you know, thing discussed and they get a lawyer. There's no mass incarceration. These are people who break the law, who have gone to prison and the neighborhoods have gotten less crime-ridden because of it, you know? It's all like, even when people say the phrase racism in America, as if you know, first of all, as if racism in America is different than racism anywhere else, but as if it were still, we were still living in the country that we did live in where black people were just systematically oppressed. It's just not true. And the thing is, you know, 
a lot we talk about feelings, you know, feelings and facts. And Shapiro has that great line, facts don't care about your feelings. Every word of that is true. That is absolutely true. But a lot of the important things in life, the most important things in life, we know inherently, we know through our sentiments, through our feelings, your, your love for your wife. You know, there's no proof of that. There's no, like, formula that you come up with that says, oh, yes, now I know I have to get married here because I have this, you know, X equals Y and all this stuff. It's all about the, the sense that you have of what's true and what's untrue. And sentimentality, I'll use that word for it, sentimentality, the abuse of your feelings to make you see life untruly is what we're talking about. You know, this, this applies to our election. Uh, you know, all, all the people who are never Trump are always hammering Donald Trump for being what he is, a kind of proto-fascist, a buffoon, a, a guy who's anti-constitutional. All that stuff is true. All that stuff is true. But I will say this. I do feel that there is this sense that there's something about Hillary Clinton, an emotional sense that there is something about Hillary Clinton that's bad, yes, but not as bad. Somehow she's normal bad. This goes back, if you think about the Soviet Union versus the Nazis, okay? I'm not calling either of these communists or, or Nazis, but I'm just saying it's the same thing. We know if you saw somebody walking down the street with a swastika, you would know right away that guy's a jerk. You know, you think this guy's an awful guy because he's got this swastika. You see somebody walking down the street with a Che Guevara T-shirt, that's normal bad, you think. You know, you see somebody with a belt buckle, I've seen this, with a belt buckle with a hammer and sickle, you think, well, you know, that's kind of stupid, but it's normal bad. You know, never mind the fact that the Soviet Union enslaved hundreds of millions of people, that they murdered, slaughtered, starved their own people, killed at least as many as the Nazis, probably more, that communism has at least claimed 100 million lives, probably all the religious wars in all of history, and there aren't that many wars that are actually caused by religion, but all the religious wars in all of history probably haven't killed as many people as communism did in the 20th century, and yet if you walk down the street with a Che Guevara t-shirt, everybody, well, that's normal bad, that's normal bad, and this is what I mean about sentimentality. Sentimentality is like, it's like the, the river that the Israelites walked out of Egypt, you know, they parted the Red Sea, and the Red Sea stood as a wall on either side. The truth is like that, you know, the, and the pillar of God, you know, the smoke and fire guided them through. The truth is just like that. You are walking between a wall of sentiments that are untrue. One of the sentiments, for instance, in these riots is the sentiment of the rioters, that sentimentality, this idea that a, a black kid getting killed is somehow more important than all the black children being killed in all the cities by the high crime rate that the police are trying to stop. In Chicago, over the weekend, when they killed nine people, a white police officer ran to the aid of a 10-year-old boy, saved his life. His name was Brian Topsuski, I think. He was a Polish name. I can't, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Did you hear that story? Was there anybody out there going like, wait, maybe we should reconsider the way we cover the police. Maybe this is a big story, and a, and a thug getting shot when he had a gun is not a big story. Maybe that's not a big story. It's what story you put in front of people that makes them think. So that's the sentimentality on one side. But there's the sentimentality of the racist, too. It is also sentimentality to say, well, all these faces I see out there are one color, so it must be the color that's to blame. It's not the ideas. It's not the history. It's not the culture. It's, it's somehow there's something about these black guys that's magically bad, you know? Never mind, never mind that the British said that about the Irish, never mind that the Russians said that about the Jews, never mind, you know, never mind that. That's all in the past. We don't have to deal with that. These people now, never mind that Nigerians who have the same exact fa color face come over to America and do great. Jamaicans do great, you know? It's not, never mind that. 
it, you know, the, the racists also have their sentimentality, and walking between those lines is a really tough thing to do. I mean, that is what we're trying to do. And that is one of the reasons why I, I talk so much about the arts, because the arts are what Flaubert called the sentimental education. You are training your sentiments to be honest. Because going back to what I said before, so much of what's important in life is axiomatic. Axiomatic means a self-evident truth. When Jefferson said we hold these truths to be self-evident, he meant they were axioms. They're things that you can't prove, but we know them. We know that people should be treated equally under the law. How do we know that? We didn't always know it. We didn't always think that. You know, I mean, there were, there were countries for centuries and centuries and centuries where a nobleman was treated differently under the law than an ordinary guy, where the pharaoh was untouchable, the pharaoh was a god. We learned those things. We, had a, we educated our sentiments over time until we got to the place where we recognized this self-evident truth. You know, it became self-evident as we learned things, and you have to learn things in order for them to become self-evident. You don't just get them. And this is one of the reasons why sentimentality in movies and books can be destructive. Now, I, I, we were just talking before the show, I love dumb action pictures. I know a lot of women who love dumb romantic comedies. There's nothing wrong with your dumb pleasures and all this. But I don't think, I don't sit around and think that Sylvester Stallone blowing up a city with a machine gun and solving all the problems of the world, I don't think that has anything to do with reality. It has to do with some little thing. Like, it's, it's a, kind of, a kind of porn that's not porn. It just sets off something in my mind that gives me pleasure and hurts nobody, so what's the problem? Okay, that's fine. But there is a lot, there's a lot of sentimentality in art, in, the, in pop art, that really is deceptive. You know, stories about, uh, you know, a, a woman who has a child, but she has no husband, and she has a job, and it's all great. The kids are all right. The kids are all right. You know, that's a, that's a, a story they're telling you, because if you're living that life, it's not so all right for anybody, including the kid. You know, that's a very difficult position to be in, and it may not have a happy ending. And so a lot of times, people who care about truth in the arts and people who care about learning how to, how to have their sentiments recognize reality. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about how do you know that something is a self-evident truth and not be deceived by your own feelings, by your own sentiments, not kind of get all tearful about something that's just not true, you know? This is what I hear from the Trump people. It's what I hear from the Hillary people. They're getting all ginned up about stuff that just ain't so. So how do you train your ideas? And this is why critics a lot of times elevate tragedy over comedy. They think that something that's sad is more realistic because life ends in death. So that's why they think that sad is more realistic. So this week on Stuff I Like, I want to talk about one of my favorite film directors, one of the greatest of all film directors, but one of the old film directors from the 30s and 40s who made happy films that aren't sentimental. And I want to talk about how, how that's done. You know, I was watching this show, um, Stranger Things, and it was a very enjoyable show. And one of the things about it was it was kind of... It took place in the 80s. It had a lot of tropes from the 80s, a horror show, a lot of Stephen King, stuff out of Stephen King. But it did talk about heroism and redemption in a way that was not annoying, that was not sentimental, and was not fake. And the director I'm going to talk about today and this week is Frank Capra. And you've probably seen It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know how many of his pictures you've seen, but I'm just going to take three pictures that sort of illustrate how you can talk about sentimental subjects without being a sentimentalist. Because one of the things about Capra, you know, is he was very big in the 30s and 40s. And then after the war, he came back 
and people attacked him for being sentimental, and they attacked him for being over-idealistic, and he's not. The reason his film's work is not. Now, one of his earliest films is... Um, uh, <laughs> God, God, God. Um, it happened one night. It happened one night. Won something like five Academy Awards. It was the first film ever to win all the big Academy Awards, you know, for the actors and the writers and the director and all the stuff. It happened one night. Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, 1934. You can watch it today the same as, you know, when the people watched it then. It is that funny and that charming and that amusing. It's a love story about an heiress who runs away from her arranged marriage, the marriage her father's trying to force on her, to run off with her lover, who's a jerk. And so you have her kind of walking that road, like the Israelites through the, the uh, walls of water, where on the one side is the arranged marriage to a man she doesn't love, and on the other side is a, a marriage, an impulsive marriage to a man she loves, who's no good. And uh, while she's on the run, she bumps into out-of-work reporter Clark Gable, and they team up and have go on a sort of road journey and fall in love with each other. And there are two scenes in this. There are two very famous scenes in film. One of them I just want to talk about because it's all visual is when Clark Gable stands up and he tries to hitchhike to get a car. And he's trying. He does. He got the thumb. He says it's all in the wrists and it's all the way you handle it. And he's doing this kind of dance. Can't get a car to stop. And finally, Claudette Colbert gets tired of this, walks to the side of the road, lifts her skirt up above her knee, and every car on the street stops cold, okay? And what this film is, and what this film captures so well, is the exact importance of sex in a loving relationship. It captures it exactly. And here's the scene where Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, they're on the run, so they're forced to share a motel room. And, of course, the people who run the motel are looking at them askance, and she's worried. And Clark Gable, the first thing he does is he hangs up one of the, This is another one of the most famous scenes in all of the movies. He hangs up a blanket to separate her bed from his bed, and he calls it the Walls of Jericho. And here's the scene. That, I suppose, makes everything quite all right. Well, this? Well, I like privacy when I retire. Yes, I'm very delicate in that respect. Crying eyes annoy me. Behold the walls of Jericho. Uh, maybe not as thick as the ones that Joshua blew down with his trumpet, but a lot safer. You see, uh, I have no trumpet. Now, just to show you my heart's in the right place, I'll give you my best pair of pajamas. Uh, do you mind joining the Israelites? You don't want to join the Israelites? All right. Uh, perhaps you're interested in how a man undresses. <laughs> you know, there's a funny thing about that. Quite a study in psychology. No two men do it alike. You know, I once knew a man who kept his hat on until he was completely undressed. Yeah, now he made a picture. Years later, his secret came out. He wore a toupee. Yeah. You know, I have a method all my own. Uh, if you'll notice, the coat came first, then the tie, then the shirt. Now, uh, according to Hoyle, after that, the uh, pants should be next. There's where I'm different. I go for the shoes next. First the right, then the left. After that, it's uh, every man for himself. So he starts to take off his pants, and she runs across the other side of the wall of Jericho. So we know that sex... Pure sex is a, it can stop traffic. It is a force that can stop, literally stop cars from moving in the street, just stop them cold. And yet, Clark Gable depends on his restraint 
and her maidenly modesty, basically, to control that force until they fall in love with each other. It is a perfect <laughs> description of the way that people in love treat each other with respect and handle this force that is within them and is bringing them together. The people in it aren't perfect. They're both a, a little cranky. She's spoiled. He's kind of a, a, a tough guy, a, you know, a, a, a smart aleck. But they fall in love, and that you understand that she is finally finding that middle path. It is a beautiful way to show love without getting sentimental and stupid. And we'll talk about the way Capra talked about two other big subjects in, uh, in great movies. All right, that's what we're going to, hopefully the city of uh, Milwaukee will stop burning. We hope it does. And the city and the state of Louisiana will stop sinking underwater now that the Clavenless weekend has come to an end. We've got a few days left before it starts again. So hang on. It's going to be a bumpy ride. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show.